Hello, everybody. This is Volts for January 28th, 2022. Volts Podcast, Panama Bartholomew on Decarbonizing America's Buildings. I'm your host, David Roberts. Fossil fuel combustion in buildings, mostly natural gas for space and water heating, is responsible for around 30% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Getting to net zero will require heating, cooling, and powering all those buildings with carbon-free energy. It's an enormous challenge, or rather, a huge thicket of challenges. There are technical issues, political issues, public opinion issues, and policy issues, all of which decompose into dozens of discrete issues on their own. To help me wrap my head around all of it, I'm eager to talk to Panama Bartholomew, who is, I promise, a real person and not a Dr. Seuss character. Bartholomew has been wrestling with building decarbonization for decades at, in reverse chronological order, the Investor Confidence Project, the California Legislature, the California Energy Commission, the California State Architect, and the California Conservation Corps. He has served on a variety of boards, collaborated with various expert organizations, worked on climate issues in over 30 countries, and all kinds of other stuff, but if I tried to include it all, I would never get to the conversation. Bartholomew is currently running the Building Decarbonization Coalition, a multi-sector alliance of companies, nonprofits, and government agencies working on buildings. So he's up to date on where progress is being made, think New York and California, the biggest political impediments, think the natural gas industry, and whether heat pumps really work in cold climates, think yes, they do. Without further ado, Panama Bartholomew, welcome to Voltscast. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about buildings. There's so much to get into here, but I want to start with a few sort of broad scene-setting questions. Just to orient us, tell us where buildings fall on the climate policy hierarchy of needs. What portion of the problem are our buildings? Yeah, Mavlov's hierarchy of needs for buildings and climate. I love it. <laughs> um, we buildings, when I say we, I mean the building sector, comes in right about 25 to 30% of overall emissions nationally and right about the same uh, globally. Depending on the state you're in and depending on the grid mix of your electricity, it, it may be a little higher or lower, but we're right about in there in that sweet spot of about 20 to 30%. I think one of the challenges is that in this sector, unlike industrial or the electricity sector, or even the transportation sector, you have millions, if not billions, of little machines right. that have a lot of consumer choice that um, you can't just shut down a coal plant and all of a sudden get a lot of benefit. You have right. to involve a lot of players in this. Yes, this seems like the decarbonization sector that involves the most logistics and the most sort of high touch kind of human interaction. And, you know, you got to think about sociology and psychology. It's a it's a tangle. It is. And that's why I appreciate you spending some time in our funny little corner of the, the climate world <laughs> over here, because what we do need is we need a lot more attention to it. 
because every time that somebody buys a new furnace or a gas water heater or a stove, they're locking in 20 to 25 years of carbon emissions from there. So it's great. Attention is one of the key things that we need on this issue. In recent years, I think there's been sort of a move in opinion in carbon circles around behind electrification. I think there's something of a consensus forming that electrification is sort of the premier decarbonization strategy. And when we look at buildings, is that the whole game? Is electrifying them all the whole game? Or or rather, another way of putting it is, how far will electrification get us? And how big is the sort of remainder once you're done electrifying? Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of good alternatives at this point, Dave. And so um, when you think about electrifying buildings, you're really talking about space heating, water heating, mm-hmm. cooking, and probably clothes drying. You do have some arguments with people about their uh, their gas fireplaces and their pool pumps, but that's a pretty small amount, all in all. And so when you look at the alternatives, is are we going to pump incredibly expensive renewable natural gas through pipes to power those? Are we going to replace the entire gas system to build a new hydrogen system to do that? Like, I don't think so. And so these are pretty you know low-level technologies when it really comes down to it mm-hmm. and the use of energy. And using expensive fuels just doesn't make sense, either from an economic perspective or a climate solutions perspective. And so electricity, to this point, really seems like it's a path we need to go down on buildings. And by and large, I mean, they're making cold weather heat pumps that can operate well down to negative 15 degrees. And so here in 2022, um, we have much, if not all, the technology we're going to need for electrification of buildings. Um, It really gets down to an issue of scale and deployment. And are we going to do it fast enough to meet our climate goals? Right. Well, I'm going to return to the subject of heat pumps a little later. And uh, I appreciate how you said 2022 so smoothly there. I have not been able to pull that (laughs) off yet. So here's a sort of, I don't know if it's a philosophical question. If we are going to electrify all the buildings and then we're going to supply that electricity with zero carbon electricity with renewables or other clean energy, if that's the case, then why do we need efficiency? Why do we need to use less energy in buildings if the energy we're using is clean? Yeah, the reason is because even if we're using clean electricity, um, we don't want to use a ton of it. And I, I consistently, you know, look forward to a, a future of Star Trek <laughs> when we don't have to have conversations about appliances and energy and where it comes from. But the reality is, is that electricity um, does cost money um, here in, in our reality. And if you're running um, even a highly efficient heat pump off of a very clean grid in a very cold climate, you just want to use less of less energy to heat your house. And so in particular, in the colder climates, it's really to save money. Right. So it's scarcity still, basically. Absolutely. And so then we could imagine a future, your Star Trek future, where renewable energy has gotten so cheap that we no longer feel the need to sort of ration it. In that theoretical future, will efficiency just fade out or is there some intrinsic, you know, worth to efficiency beyond just saving a scarce resource. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was raised in a California and then Hawaii. 
Um, and so I have a primal fear of being <laughs> even slightly cold. Uh, my wife did her undergraduate work in Minnesota. And so whenever I complain about being cold, she mocks me. And say, Just because you were colder at one point in your life doesn't invalidate my feelings of discomfort right now. So the benefit is really going to be one of comfort moving right. forward. And when you talk to the leaders in the energy efficiency community that actually sell efficiencies successfully, and there's only two, um, <laughs> what they'll say is basically that's usually what sells efficiency. It's comfort. It's air quality. It's just a better quality of life rather than the marginal savings you get from it. So in the colder and the hotter climes, efficiency is always going to have a role to play. But I think it's increasingly people are recognizing that it's less important in the time frames that we're talking about for addressing climate change than getting off of fossil fuels. We can't just be using less fossil fuels. We need right. to stop using fossil fuels. Let's do a little bit of a speed round. I want to talk about these sort of impediments to building decarbonization in three different areas. So let's just run through them real quick. So putting aside politics, if you can make your brain do that, putting aside politics and regulation, I'm concerned what is the biggest technical barrier to building decarbonization? Are there still sort of practical and engineering and technological problems to solve? Or is this really just at this point all about policy and investment? So what you have is a situation of the technology itself and then um, market awareness or market familiarity with the technology. And so on the low-rise buildings, when you look at low-rise commercial buildings, low-rise multifamily residential buildings, the technology is there. Um, as I mentioned, we have incredibly performing cold climate heat pumps um, the technology is there, and a heat pump is just an air conditioner that runs in reverse. So anybody that installs an air conditioner knows how to install a heat pump. Heat pump water heater, it's not crazy um, Vulcan technology. <laughs> so the technology is there for that, and there's enough familiarity with it that if we can put in place the right market signals and the right policies, it'll be an easy shift for the industry. For the high-rise we have a few more challenges. You have the Starkitects and the really good engineering <laughs> firms that are very familiar with doing central hot water heating systems with heat pumps. But by and large, that's one technology where even though it exists, it's being deployed in countries all over the world, particularly here in America, there's less awareness and history of designers doing central heat pump water heaters. And so that's one area where we still have to come up to speed on it. And then the biggest barrier on the technical side right now is actually just home wiring hmm. and home electrical panels. Oh, like upgrading to prepare for electrification, that kind of thing? Exactly. Exactly. Undersized electrical panels that if you're adding all of a sudden four new appliances and maybe an electric vehicle, you're right. going to have to upgrade your uh, electrical panel, which isn't bad in itself. And it's, for a lot of homes, there's a safety benefit to it as well. Mm. The challenge is that in our world, what usually brings that about is a failed furnace or a failed water heater. <laughs> right. And so it's These an decisions are made under duress, uh, usually. Yeah, exactly. So that's technical. What about the biggest political impediment? Is it consumer ignorance or consumer sentiment? Or is it, uh, as I tend to suspect, mainly opposition from the natural gas industry? <laughs> What's the biggest political barrier? The biggest political barrier right now is fear. Hmm. Um, and it's the fear of politicians to set out 
um, agendas that are in line with their stated climate goals. And so you have even leadership states like California and New York that have very strong climate goals. And when you look at them, you think of all the different sectors that are emitting. You look at buildings and say, okay, well, pretty soon here, we got to stop burning fossil fuels in buildings. And yet you see a hesitancy of leadership to really set out that vision. And what that results in is market confusion. Um, you have the manufacturers, the installers, the builders all saying, well, on one hand, it's pretty obvious what you're going to have to do to us through regulation if you're going to meet your climate goals. But on the other hand, you're still allowing new buildings to hook up to the gas system. You're still providing energy efficiency incentives for gas appliances. Mm. You're still putting out billions of dollars into affordable housing and school construction of taxpayer dollars. And you have no alignment of those policies with your climate policies. And so right now, it's really fear to step up and set bold policies for buildings that are holding it back. And so you mentioned some of the reasons where that fear may be coming from. And largely, it is uh, gas utilities who um, are either resistant to looking what their future could look like or don't see a future for themselves in a low carbon future. And in particular, the unions mm. um, that work within those companies and lay those pipes right. or unions that lay pipe um, in buildings. Um, what we are seeing in both New York and California right now is you organized labor starting to come to the table. And they use the same language, Dave, every time when we sit down at the table with them, they say, we see the writing on the wall. <laughs> we know where this is going. And so we're coming to the table to begin to negotiate um, what a just transition actually looks like beyond just a slogan. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll get back to policy in just a little bit. But the final third uh, question is, what about financial? What is the biggest financial impediment? Is it just a lack of government money or is there a lack of financing and funding models that we need to overcome? Yeah. So part of the beauty of working in our space that I really enjoy, and I've spent about 20 years in energy efficiency policy. I'm a recovering bureaucrat, spent about 15 <laughs> years in state government and um, in California, is that we are working with technologies that are not a choice for consumers. Um, you know, a lot of people, they try to think about building electrification and they draw parallels with the solar industry or the electric vehicle industry or lessons learned from energy efficiency. And while there is stuff to learn from that, the reality is you don't need to have solar panels in order to stay warm in your house. Right. Um, you don't need an electric vehicle in order to be able to provide hot water for your family. And so we're dealing with technologies that people fundamentally have a lot of urgency around um, when they break. But the beauty is they break. And <laughs> absent any of our electrification goals or our climate goals, that person was going to spend anywhere from seven to $15,000 on a new furnace and air conditioning system. They were already going to spend a couple thousand dollars on a water heater when their water heater breaks. And so they are already were going to have to spend money, think through what financing options are available to them, et cetera. And so what we need to do in this space really is figure out how to add just enough money and just enough access to financing to be able to shift that decision around to the technologies we want. Right. We don't need to pay for the entire water heater. What we need <laughs> to do is we need to pay a few hundreds to maybe even a thousand and a half for that water heater in order to help them choose a heat pump water heater than going back to another gas water heater. 
So what we need is we need some incentives, particularly over the next decade, to be able to make it so that the electric choice is the cheaper choice. Mm -hmm. And then for low-income and moderate households, we need to be focused on accessible financing models for communities that have historically been left out of capital markets. And so we've done a big report on this about what that could look like, how to use tariff non-bill financing in an effective way to both protect consumers, but allow far more people, um, lower income and renters to be able to take advantage of financing to make these upgrades. Right. I was going to ask this later, actually, but you've segued into it well. So a lot of, you know, when I talk about uh, building decarbonization, one of the first questions that always comes up is about renters. Like, Mm -hmm. unless my landlord is, you know, has good intentions and is excited about this, there's not much I can do. Is there agency for renters or what, what what should they do or how do you get to landlords? Yeah. And so I want to divide this into two different answers in order to completely violate the speed round rules that you've laid out. Um, and speed round rules are always kind of a joke here on Volts. So, <laughs> um, so there's, there's your water heating, your space heating, and then there's your cooking. Right. And you'll see why I want to divide them in a second. And so your water heating and your space heating really for all technologies Landlords are just generally looking for the cheapest option. Right. Something breaks, they need to replace it. It's the cheapest option. So what I mentioned in the last answer about making the electric choice the cheapest choice and having good financing for high-efficiency electric appliances, that's what's going to help landlords make the better choice, that they're able to actually save money um, up front uh, on these technologies. And so the same incentive programs and financing that help homeowners are also going to help us have landlords help renters with that. Now, key to that really is that we have also in place um, policies to protect renters so that landlords don't install this technology and then try to raise the rent mm. um, on them at all. It'll be a, it's a key conversation happening right now. But I wanted to pull apart cooking because cooking may be an area where there is more agency than what we've historically expressed. It's because of this. It's because of the air quality impacts of cooking with gas. There's now a good, and I've seen you discuss it, you know, 40 years of research showing that there are potentially significant air quality impacts of burning gas in your home and around your family. And there are laws in this country around habitability um, that landlords have to follow and they need to provide good environments. And so if a landlord is providing an environment that does not have good venting over a stove, and or has a stove that you can test and show is emitting dangerous levels of pollution, Um, we are now starting to work with a number of groups across the country about how do you then turn that into policy and how can you empower local governments to include that in their habitability requirements, which would compel landlords to then make the shift to either a different kind of stove um, and or venting to get in there. Is that about passing new policies upgrading the habitability standards or is there some way to sort of interpret or use existing habitability standards to kind of get at stoves do you know what i mean like is are are the tools there already yeah we believe that the tools are already there that the habitability standards cover this and it's a matter of somebody now actually stepping up and testing it and so we're engaged with a number of groups looking at um, doing air quality testing um, over a period of time working with tenant groups and to then be working with the local governments to be able to say, look, this is the data right here. Uh, We're potentially having higher pollution coming from the stoves in these people's homes than the highways or the ports next to them. 
Um, as much as we need to address those, we also need to be addressing this. We haven't yet had the first city um, go ahead and adopt it, but we're in a conversation with a number of them, and I hope uh, in the near future be able to talk to you about that. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, there's one other big topic that not quite sure how to approach, but you know, when we talk about building decarb, almost everyone, their minds go to the operational emissions, basically. You're burning mm-hmm. your furnace, you're heating your house, you're doing et cetera. But the other half of the equation is what's called embodied emissions, which means the sort of emissions represented by the manufacture and transport of the materials used in the building. And this is just, it seems like a relatively nascent, maybe I just haven't been paying attention, but like it just seems like this is just starting to sort of get a lot of interest. This seems like something that consumers have very little control over. Where's the... who needs to understand embodied emissions and who where's the right level to take action on that? Yeah, embodied emissions, really, the Carbon Leadership Forum has been the leading voice uh, on this issue out of your area, right out of Washington. And they've done a ton of good work on this. And it's it's a combination of factors. And I think it, it really gets down to, I think, some of your individual theories of change about how we're going to address climate change. And so I'll just be transparent with me is that I think we need to be doing as much as we can um, in the 2020s to invest and to um, incentivize and to educate. And then we're looking at a series of regulations in the 2030s that brings along everybody that wasn't incentivized or wasn't uh, didn't fall to our education. <laughs> um, and so on embodied carbon, I think it's going to be very much the same thing. And so right now, a lot of the focus on embodied carbon is on the design and construction community. Right. And how do we get the specifiers in all these firms, largely at the commercial and multifamily and institutional side, how do we get them to start to specify different different materials? And you have leadership systems like LEED and the Living Building Challenge actually incorporating in greater transparency to product design and uh, product development. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. If, if you're a, a builder or, a bi- or like a big builder, I'm guessing your primary you know, sentiment about this is that you just don't want to waste a bunch of time on it. So is there a free, is there, um, you know, like you don't want to go have to do the research on the materials yourself. Is there an easy way for a builder to just say to suppliers, you know, you must meet X standard? Like, is there a standard out there yet that they can just pin their supply on? Yeah, absolutely. So LEED and the Institute for Living Futures has really been the two leading groups on this and forcing through their rating systems, a system for manufacturers to be able to report on the environmental impacts of their products. And so we're Mm -hmm. getting beyond just recycled content or emissions, we're actually now getting into a life cycle analysis of the product. And so they're really providing the model right now uh, for products to be to be measured against. The other place that we're seeing it, Dave, is really at um, the local and state level, but they haven't been able to get much beyond um, cement, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, that's a, a big one. It is. It is. Um, but we need to be getting into steel. You know, there's a number of different uh, large systems. And so California a couple of years ago passed a Buy Clean California bill that required state government to start to reduce the embodied carbon of um, steel, glass and a couple other products that they purchased for their own buildings. 
And then the at the local level, we so we're seeing local governments actually pass embodied carbon ordinances that say, and is mostly focused around cement and uh, using uh, low carbon cement in both public and private buildings that are being built. But it is very nascent, and we haven't seen anywhere near the attention that we've seen on operational emissions of buildings on embodied carbon. And folks like Ed Masria out of Architecture 2030 makes a very compelling point that actually the bigger carbon problem is the embodied carbon than, than the operational. And if you, you can sort of, again, looking down the road at, at our um, you know imaginary future, we can imagine then if you reduce your operational greenhouse gases to nothing through clean electrification and, and sealing and all that, and then you secure low carbon materials, you can imagine buildings not just zeroing out their emissions, you can imagine buildings becoming carbon sinks, carbon stores, right? Negative carbon. Is that something that, that people are thinking about yet? Or is that just a, a, a 20, you know, 50 type of thing? No, people are talking about it, and it sounds like you are hanging out with some of those architects that I, <laughs> I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, it's not enough to be net zero anymore. You need to be, uh, you know, you need to be carbon positive right. uh, community. Um, so, you know, the science is there. I mean, you know, you sequester carbon in certain materials that you use in a project, and if you use enough of it and you zero out your operational, you should be able to do it. Again, we need to get it beyond the Starkitect buildings to the mainstream. And that's where I just fundamentally feel that government has to play the role here. And the most important thing they can do in 2022 is say to the market, where are we going? And then how are we going to help create the market to allow the regulations to actually work when they come into effect? Right. Well, I want to get to some specific places doing policy, but one other question first, which has come up a couple of times recently. Lots of the pandemic has sort of made salient the issue of ventilation and air quality inside buildings brought a lot of attention to the effect that air quality and ventilation is fairly abysmal in many uh, existing buildings. And now this is uh, becoming a public health issue. Is good ventilation and filtering and air quality, et cetera, et cetera, in tension with efficiency? Like, are those necessarily going to mean more energy or how do you see those fitting together? Um, They're necessary. For 40 years out here in California, we've tightened up the building envelope. Right. I say that the folks over at the California Energy Commission belong to the the cult or the church of the envelope um, (laughs) because of their dedication to it. And so... When you do that, you necessarily start to trap any emissions in your home. So all your aerosols, all the furniture you bring into your house, and then... Microplastics. Microplastics. I think I'm probably one quarter microplastic at this point um, (laughs) because I have two young kids. Um, So, and for our world, it's really the pollution that comes from the stove. So Mm. uh, potentially dangerous levels of nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, and formaldehyde coming out. And if you don't have venting, and you have a really tight envelope, um, and you're cooking in winter, you don't want to open the windows, you have a potentially dangerous situation there for your lung health and with carbon monoxide for just your overall life. And so it's a critical piece of energy efficiency, and we're starting to actually have a pretty brutal conversation, I'll say, in the energy efficiency community about, particularly around some of our low-income weatherization programs, Mm. that what is the morality behind tightening up some of these homes and providing comfort and saving money without addressing 
some of the pollutants inside those very homes. So it's absolutely critical that we deal with ventilation and removing removing sources of pollution. And we know that stoves are a critical source of pollution. And we know that we have much better technology that just blows the doors off of gas stoves to replace it with. I mean, is this just come down to building in ventilation and airflow standards into our regulations? Is that the long and short of it? On new construction, yes. And last year, the Energy Commission in California adopted its new building code that will go into effect in two years. And it's the first time we've seen in the world a building code that's differentiating the ventilation standard it requires based on the type of fuel you're using to cook food. Oh, interesting. And so they're saying if you have a gas stove under this code in your new construction, you're going to have to have a higher ventilation standard and therefore a more expensive ventilation system than electric one. So it's the first time we've recognized the inherent health benefits of cooking um, without gas um, in a code. For existing buildings, always the most affordable way, whether it's you're talking about waste, whether you're talking about water treatment, it's always uh, source control is always your best bet. And so you just want to find a way to get the gas stove um, out of the kitchen and get an electric one in there. You're still going to have some emissions from just cooking, you know, and Mm -hmm. depending on how good a cook you are from burning. (laughs) Um, So you do want some ventilation for that, but at least you don't have what are known criteria pollutants from the EPA being emitted into your kitchen in that case. And so I say that because it could be in some situations These homes are just built in a way that is going to make ventilation systems very hard to retrofit in and um, unwilling uh, landlords to do something about it. So you could create a bit of an incentive here then for builders or retrofitters, like get rid of the gas stove and thereby save money on ventilation spending, right? Exactly. And so the Energy Commission's done that like small step. You know, they didn't say no more gas stoves, but they said we recognize gas stoves are dangerous. And therefore, you're going to have to deal with it. So, yes, it is a regulatory incentive. So let's talk then about, I mean, I think we can agree that nothing like the scale of action we'd like to see is happening. But there are places that are taking big steps ahead. So let's talk about a few of those. What happened in New York? The governor laid out some big talk. I'm curious what she said and what authority it carries. Like what else needs to happen to make it move forward? Yeah, very impressive first state of the state from Governor Hochul um, on the environment, I got to say. I think Politico called her a juggernaut, a political juggernaut. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, her her hometown bills couldn't quite get over the the hump last weekend. But uh, she put out some very big goals for buildings. um, And it matches well with what's happening in the state right now, which is the beginning of a public process for their climate scoping plan, their big plan that's been under development for years about how they're going to meet their climate leadership legislation. And so what the governor announced And I mean, it is a laundry list. It could take up the rest of the podcast to really go through it. And so I'll I'll just be brief on it. But she released just a comprehensive package of proposals in the state of the state, some that can be carried out through her public service commission um, and some that will need legislation and some that will be addressed in the budget. And she has a supportive legislature, yes or no? She does. She does. She hasn't really had to test it yet. 
But uh, what we've seen from the uh, last governor, whose name shall not be spoken, um, <laughs> is that, you know, he was able to, I'm doing air quotes over here, work well or um, bully um, the <laughs> legislature into carrying out the agenda. And so I think it goes to see, you know, we'll see if the, this governor has a similar success rate with the legislature. But it seems like it. there's been three great pieces of legislation immediately introduced. Um, around building electrification um, in the legislature. So I think there's a lot of action on it. But to your original question, the governor proposed to how to bring about 2 million climate-friendly homes by 2030, with at least 1 million of those being all electric and 1 million being electric ready so that um, they're pre-wired. And so next time any of your gas appliances break, you're mm. ready to go um, with electric appliances. Does climate-friendly have a, a concrete definition? <laughs> I've never seen climate-friendly in law. Yet, um, it was a turn of phrase that her uh, her her media folks uh, developed for this one. <laughs> Could mean a lot of different things in practice. And... Yes, yes, indeed. I'm I'm sure the, the um, gas companies um, <laughs> have a lot to say about climate friendly. Um, she called for all new construction in the state to be zero emission no later than 2027, um, which is in line with what New York City just adopted for all buildings being built in New York City at the end of last year. And that's operational again, not embodied emissions. Correct, correct. It's operational emissions. So does that mean? And when she says construction means zero zero carbon, meaning the resulting building will not produce carbon on an ongoing basis, or the construction process itself is somehow um, zero carbon. The resulting building. I mean, and we'll see. We'll see how it all gets you know, played out. It's a lot of platitudes and speeches for the <laughs> state of the state address. There's a piece of legislation currently working through their legislature that actually sets 2024 um, as a zero emission date for construction. Um, and so, if that one passes, there's a series of definitions in there. But that is from operations on emissions rather than embodied or construction emissions. Got it. Yep. She also put up a green electrification fund to electrify low-income homes, uh, about $25 billion for a five-year plan, Whoa. Um, which is you know just far more visionary than we've seen from anybody else. There's a certain law that we deal with when we work on natural gas around. It's called obligation to serve. Yes. And um, for your listeners, sounds like you're familiar with it, but there's um, a law for... Uh, utilities that provide gas, usually monopolies, that they are obliged to provide that gas or electricity to ratepayers um, if requested. Um, if you're, you know, if you're far out in the country, you may need to pay for some of that infrastructure, but the utility is obliged to provide it to you. And it's a real barrier when you're looking about starting to trim the gas network. And so the governor and her address actually proposed to end the obligation to serve for existing customers. Wait, so just to be clear about this, say you were trying to sort of eliminate part of your gas network and electrify everything in that area. All it would take is one citizen <laughs> to say to the natural gas company, I would like to be served by gas. And then basically you you can't get rid of it. Is that, I mean, is that the sort of legal situation right now? Yeah. And we're seeing it out here in California, Pacific Gas and Electric, you know, largest utility in the country, fourth largest distributor of natural gas. Um, they are trying to go through figuring out how you can operationalize um, electrification. Right. And so they've been doing some pilot programs around going to whole neighborhoods where they have really old pipe that's coming up for replacement. Mm -hmm. It's going to be millions of dollars in replacement. They've done the analysis and they said, okay, if instead we just electrify all the homes on this pipe extension, 
It's actually going to be cheaper for us, right. for ratepayers. And so they go to every single one of those homes and they ask each homeowner, hey, would you like a free all-electric home? <laughs> and so we've seen two case studies they've done on this. And one of them, um, it worked. Um, they saved $400,000 um, on the project compared to the gas pipeline replacement. And it was great. And on the other one, um, out of 150 homes, two people didn't want to give up their gas stoves. Oh, hilarious. And so pg e had to go ahead and spend millions to replace <laughs> pipes that are going to have keep a, those gas stoves running. They're going to have a 60 to 80 year lifespan. Oh, my God. Um, that we're, if we're going to meet our climate goals, we're going to have to early retire and Who's going to pay for that? And it's going to be ratepayers paying for that early retirement. So this would be a law to get rid of that obligation? This would be a law. And so a piece of legislation has now been introduced in New York legislature to remove that obligation to serve. She also has called on the PSC to take a look at the whole approach to pipeline maintenance in New York mm. and um, and how we grade it and how we decide whether or not to replace pipe or look for non-pipe alternatives to it, such as electrification. And so completely changing our approach to just assuming that we're going to replace old pipe with uh, with new pipe. And I could go on and on. Um, she has a bunch of stuff for training programs for New Yorkers to get a lot more people in. But I think one of the really two exciting areas I'll bring up is she's talked about needing to convene private capital markets and, you know, no better place than New York to yeah. be doing some of that convening to be able to bring them in to figure out how they can support this. And then lastly, she's proposed a thousand clean green schools. And this is an opportunity to clearly be able to get um, organized labor more to the table to be supporting building electrification as well as providing better ventilation um, and air quality in schools. Yeah, I always thought that was political gold, just waiting for someone to pick yeah. it up. You know, the respiratory health of kids, like what's more on people's minds right now? Exactly. And unfortunately, what we're seeing, I live in fire country out here in California. We used to call it wine country. And um, <laughs> And increasingly, our schools and our public facilities are being used as resilient centers in heat waves and firestorms. And so getting these schools with solar batteries, all electric, with really great ventilation systems is going to be, unfortunately, a critical need as we deal with and potentially adapt to climate change. Yeah. Well, we could stay on New York forever. Uh, It's amazing what's going on there. But what about uh, California? That's sort of the other big state example that's come up recently. California is going to just spend a bunch of money on it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a proposal at this point. Um, uh, Sadly, probably nowhere near as much as we need to, but it's a good start. What I would say about the difference between what we're seeing in New York and in California is that in New York, you're seeing some high level leadership coming directly out of the governor's mouth. Right. And in California, the leadership is really bottoms up. Um, we have 54 cities across the state that have adopted local gas bans or local building codes that discourage gas. We have agencies like the Air Board and the Energy Commission and the Public Utilities Commission adopting piecemeal policies that are all building towards a direction of requiring electrification and incentivizing it and building the market. But until January 10th of this year, we didn't really see anything ever coming from the governor's office about we need to start electrifying, we need to start getting off of fossil fuels. And so on uh, January 10th, the governor released his proposed budget for the year. And he proposed just over a billion dollars 
for building electrification um, with two thirds of that going towards low income housing um, retrofits, existing building low income housing retrofits. So we're starting to see some significant investment, um, you know, more so than we've seen in the past. But mm-hmm. um, but at this point, I got to say, I think if you put a you know, UFC championship belt on any governor <laughs> right now, it's this governor Hochul, I got to say. So are, are New York and California, you think, I mean, they're the leaders on so much carbon and climate stuff. Are they the leaders in this uh, respect, too, on buildings? Or is there, is there anyone else that's taking comparable action? There are. Um, you know, I mentioned the local governments, and, yeah, yeah. and I think that's just a theme we've seen uh, from addressing climate change, you know, for decades now is that the locals, and it's interesting to me, Dave, because, you know, the locals are the ones that are the most exposed to voters. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet they have been taking across the world, you know, the biggest swings on climate change because they think they see both the benefits and the risks of climate change more directly than at our state or federal levels. But other states, I would say that. Massachusetts, um, Illinois, and Colorado are stepping up, um, and I'll throw Washington in there as well. So Massachusetts is just about to vote on the next three years of their energy efficiency program, and they have nearly completely shifted the focus of the energy efficiency program to make it much more electrification focused. Yeah, this is a big thing, right? Because efficiency conventionally conceived is not necessarily perfectly aligned with electrification or cleaning up sources, it, it, often intention. I feel like this is something not, not a lot of people are really super aware of outside the space. Yeah, no, it very much is. And, you know, and I think a lot of it is because the energy efficiency uh, mindset really is, you know, came out of originally the oil crisis of the 70s. Yeah, decades old, really dug yeah. in. Yeah, and it's just about saving more energy. You know, it's not about ending emissions. And right. so the sudden shift to all of a sudden climate yeah, yeah. is existential. I think it's been hard for folks that have been working in the space for, you know, 30 years or so. So that'll be great in Massachusetts. Um, Colorado and Illinois both passed legislation, um, overall climate legislation last year that um, had buildings as a specific part of it. And in this implementation, they're going to be developing comprehensive roadmaps for how to deal with buildings in both Colorado and Illinois. And then in Washington, they're actually adopting a new building code. And for commercial and multifamily buildings, they're proposing um, electrification mandates mm. um, within that building code. So your home state up there hey, go is, uh, is one of the leaders. The odd thing is, the odd thing is they're backing off on single-family homes where it's the easiest uh, to do it, and it's largely because of stoves. Oh, we're going to get back to that. Also, we have the, it's just like everybody thinks they have the worst drivers where they live. I think everybody thinks they have the worst <laughs> NIMBYs where they live, but we really have some terrible, terrible, terrible NIMBYs up here. Uh, just um, as a side note, because you mentioned it and it's on my mind, it's easier to electrify residential, yep. big buildings and commercial buildings, industrial buildings. That's just doable. It's just more expensive. The incentives are wrong. Like what's the, what's the status of bigger buildings? Is this something we know how to do? It's very much doable. It's being done. I can point to you buildings in Seattle um, that actually are all electric tall towers. Um, one of the leading consulting firms, Ecotope, on this issue is out of the Seattle area. Um, so it's, it is very possible and being done all over the world. You said the key thing there, though, is awareness. 
we haven't asked our bread and butter design and construction community to care this deeply about climate change before. And so mm-hmm. they've been focused on efficiency and not on these central heat pump water heating systems. Um, the HVAC systems, you know, again, like I said, I mean, these are basically heat pumps or air conditioners that can run in reverse. Right. So it's not complicated to be able to design that. But there are some differences in a boiler-based um, water heating system versus a heat, a central heat pump water heating system. And it's nothing crazy. You know, it's not Star Wars technology. I mean, it's just like a, it's just familiarity with it and being able to design around it. And so, unfortunately, I think we're going to do a ton of education and incentivizing in the 2020s and then be having to require it in the 2030s. But it's very doable. It's being done for the folks that know how to do this. We're not seeing a price premium for building all electric versus building um, with gas. And in fact, Point Energy out of San Francisco did a big study for the University of California system, who's adopted a carbon neutrality by 2025 target about what does it cost to build and operate a building with gas and electric versus just electric. They looked at residential towers, they looked at office buildings, and they looked at labs. And what they found was that the electric buildings cost the same or cheaper to build and operate than the gas buildings across all three of those building types. Now, is this one of those things where it's more capital intensive up front, but then you save on operations over the long term? Because, you know, I used to be very taken by that story, but then I realized that like, as nice as that is, that's not really what motivates a lot of behavior in markets. You know, people really overweight those upfront capital costs. So is that still the situation? Not in this space. I mean, you never want to make generalizations about construction. Yeah. You know, it's like every project is different. Yeah, um, right. Every time you interact with the supply chain is different than another time you interact with the supply chain. But by and large, um, what our members who are design and construction folks in this space that know how to do this, they say they don't see a cost premium for the construction of these projects for large commercial institutional. Interesting. Another policy question is not who's doing great, but there's a lot of states now that are, uh, let's say, <laughs> pushing the other direction. And one of the ways they're doing that is by passing these laws that preempt cities within them from passing gas bans and whatnot. You know, it's popped up in a lot of red states. Is there anything to say about that other than uh, they should stop doing that? <laughs> That's bad. We should we should elect somebody who won't do that. Or if you're a city who's in one of those states, are there ways around it? Are there other things you can do? How should they deal with that? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I mean, what it fundamentally comes down to is taking away local government's choice about how to address climate change. By the party that champions local government, weird. Local control, yes. It's, it's, yes, very weird times. It's almost like it's disingenuous. Um, So, you know, when you look at what cities can do on climate change, I mean, usually it's transportation and buildings are the largest emissions. It just depends how much infrastructure or industry they have in their boundaries. And transportation emissions are tough. A lot of it's consumer choice. Your land use choices take a long time to have a big impact. Um, Public transportation's uh, tough and expensive. And so buildings are really one of the key areas the local governments can actually do anything. And so when you take that primary tool away, you're really crippling local government's ability to do anything on climate change. And so what we're seeing right now is some creative ways to look around here. Um, Some of the states that have adopted this have really focused in on building codes. And so you have some cities looking at, can we use some of our planning law? 
and some of our health and safety law instead of our building code law, mm. which has now been preempted by by state government. So you are seeing some some cities trying to look for creative ways around this. Um, ultimately, Dave, you know, I mean, I love all of our 50 states equally. <laughs> um, but um, when you look at where the gas demand is, and you look at the top 10 states by gas demand, only Texas and Ohio out of the top 10 have been states that have adopted these bans. Oh, interesting. The other eight states are all climate leaders. They all have climate mm. laws. They have climate targets. And they collectively represent over half of the gas demand yeah. in the United States and buildings. And so I think what you're going to be seeing is really a, a coalition of those states really changing the marketplace. And the smaller states with smaller gas demand are going to just have to deal with the implications of those market changes. A little bit like a fuel economy, right? Like you get enough big states going in the right direction, they sort of end up dragging the market with them. Very much so. Very much so. And then finally, before we leave policy, there's also some federal stuff, um, hard as it is to believe, the federal government doing things. So I know Biden has done an executive order on federal buildings, and I know there's some money in the infrastructure bill. Are you excited by what's happened so far federally on buildings? Or is there particular pieces of it we should be aware of? There's more than we've ever seen, and that's great. Um, that's always such a low bar in these conversations. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's something. When you work in climate, I think you have to be an optimist. Maybe not <laughs> if you report on climate, but if you work in climate. You have to be an optimist um, because the the numbers are are just are too stark. So the fact that we actually appointed somebody in the White House, Mark Chambers, formerly from New York City, to be the lead on building emissions for the Council on Environmental Quality, I think is amazing. The fact that you have Secretary Granholm going around and giving big press events around cold climate heat pumps and people yelling from behind her, heat pump nation. Um, <laughs> Love I think it. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, <laughs> DOE moving forward on regulations that manufacturers of heating equipment say are going to be pushing the market to electrification. I think we're seeing um, a lot of what we need to see. Now, it's our fundamental belief that you don't see significant federal action until you see a lot of state action. Uh, so federal is the caboose in this area, yeah. as usual? Federal is the bank and then the caboose on regulations. And so we need significant <laughs> investment from the federal government. And then that investment will help locals and states be able to adopt regulations that will transform the market enough that actors of all colors will come back to Washington and say, listen, this is too haphazard and patchwork. Right. We need some level of consistency across the country. Is there anything in Build Back Better, you know, if any of us need to feel additional anxiety about Build Back Better, is there anything big on buildings in Build Back Better that you are hoping makes it through this twisted process? There is. There is. Um, and, you know, much of it thanks to former guests on this podcast who have done great work in this area, particularly Saul and the folks over at Rewiring America. Right. Um, so there's $17 billion in there for federal buildings, Ooh. which always, you know, I, I have a hard time getting too excited about when I think about, you know, taxpayers looking at, it's like, great. So you're going to do a bunch of stuff that you should have been doing the whole time. Um <laughs> And now we're supposed to get excited about this? What about the $17 billion to help me with my water heater right. out there? But there's $12 billion for uh, residential electrification. 
And so that'll be split about $6 billion coming out of the Department of Energy to provide direct rebates for the whole suite of electrification technologies, water heating, space heating, cooking, and clothes drying. And then there's $6 billion that'll be implemented through state energy offices. And um, that'll be focused on what is one of the biggest movements in energy efficiency right now, performance-based energy efficiency measures. Can you give a, like the capsule summary of what that means? Yeah. So historically, we've had really widget-based or deemed savings for energy efficiency where... Right. You just incentivize them to buy the equipment. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and even worse, we give installers money just because they installed the equipment, not necessarily the quality of the installation, uh, the performance right. of it. Right. How does it perform on the grid when we have grids that have very different greenhouse gas profiles depending right. on the time of day that that power is being drawn? And so a performance-based energy efficiency program actually gives some money up front for an incentive, but the majority of the incentive is paid out based on the actual operations and performance of those systems. Right. And so how efficient, how much energy did it save? How much carbon did it displace? Um, how many emissions um, did it avoid? And there's $6 billion currently in the Build Back Better bill that uh, would go towards supporting states to set up those programs. And that would be run out of the state energy offices at each of the, um, at each of the states. Interesting. And we have the, like, technologically, we have what we need to be able to track performance in a way that you can really bank on it. We do. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, some of the technologies out there, um, you know, leading firms like uh, Recurve is providing just uh, fantastic tools for utilities to be able to actually pull apart the dynamics around a kilowatt hour saved mm. and why that kilowatt hour saved, normalizing for weather, normalizing for occupancy. Um, it's incredible. It's incredible what these computers can do nowadays, Dave. <laughs> I actually want to get back to the fancy computers in a minute, but I do want to take a minute just to talk about heat pumps. They have gone from nowhere to now people chanting heat pump nation. Uh, it's a thrill. But when I bring them up and talk about them, immediately I hear, I installed one 10 years ago and my house is always colder or I can't afford to install one because I'd have to get fossil fuel backup with it. And this has actually happened to me <laughs> about seven or eight years ago, we were going to replace our original oil furnace in our house, which had been there since 1954. One of these big, giant peach colored. I don't know why all appliances were peach colored in the 50s, but we had one of those and we wanted to get rid of it. And I would have loved to get a, a heat pump, but the contractors were baffled and resistant. <laughs> yep. And the contractors assured us, basically, if you get a heat pump, you have to get a natural gas furnace to back up the heat pump. And that, like it all told, would have been, I don't know, like 8000 additional dollars. Yeah. So I ended up, to my great and ongoing, enduring regret, uh, installing a natural gas furnace. So I feel like that's a pretty representative experience in terms of A, people not knowing, B, contractors not knowing what the hell they're doing, and then C, this question of whether heat pumps can do the job and in what climates. So can we get some clarity on that? Like how good are heat pumps these days? Um, heat pumps are great these days. Um, we have really through the leadership of the Northeast Energy Efficiency Partnership, or NEEP, a whole database of cold climate heat pumps. Um, they pioneered a cold climate heat pump specification years ago. 
and have been working with manufacturers um, since then to really make sure that there's a suite of different cold climate heat pumps available. And what that means is that these are heat pumps where the heat pump part of the heat pump can operate down to negative 14 degrees, 14 degrees below mm-hmm. zero. And then before electric resistance kicks in, or if you have a gas backup, before that gas backup needs to be able to kick in. So the technology is really there, but what you're really talking about is your interaction with the contractor. And that's going to be one of the uh, hardest things about this transition is the fact is, try to call up a plumber right now, try to call up an HVAC installer right now, and people are just flat busy. They were flat busy before the Mm. pandemic. And then now we're in the pandemic, everybody wants to renovate their home, and which is now their home office, and they're busier than ever. And there's no reason that contractors should change what they're doing if they're selling and if they're booked months out in advance. And so it's going to be up to us who are concerned about climate to basically give them a reason. And it's not going to work to require it right now because of the shock to the system that'll create for this workforce. And so it's going to have to be incentives and then regulation. Let me pause on the shock because like, what is the, is that about there are just not enough people trained to do it? Or is it about heat pump manufacturers not being ready to ramp up quickly or logistics or what would be the shock if you tried to push it too fast right now? Yeah, no, it's a great question because there's this fallacy out there about, um, you know, we don't have enough trained workers. Yeah, yeah. And I hear that a lot. The reality is, again, we're not installing crazy alien technology here. I mean, a heat pump is a air conditioner that can also run in reverse. Right. A heat pump water heater is a tank of water with a heat pump on top. And so this is not complicated stuff. Electricians know how to electrician. They know how to run, run wires. So it's not an issue of a lack of workforce. It's an issue of incentivizing the workforce really in the right way. Mm. And so right now, the major things that um, installers want to work with and the major, major things that installers want to avoid is callbacks. You know, they want to be able to go in, put in something and then not be called back out, which will right. prevent them from doing another job. And if you historically have not cared about the performance um, of your HVAC system that you're installing or the performance of your uh, water heating system, it can be a change to all of a sudden now have to be forced to care about that performance. And so what we're seeing is a gradual transition of this workforce over to electric installations. But until we send some clear market signals, there's no reason for them to make that shift. And so you have all the myths, the myths you ran into. It's like, oh, well, they can't operate in even Seattle's like mildly cold climate. (laughs) Um, You need gas backup. You know, these things just don't work. And um, one of the other things, Dave, is we're just going to have to also accept the difficulty of living in the first wave of addressing climate change and that things are going to be better next decade and things are going to be have a lot of friction and be pretty hard this decade um, in order to do some of this as we help to transition this industry. That same story seems to come up a lot. So here then is a big topic, and it's when I hear uh, pushback against electrification, this is the main thing I hear, or at least in terms of substantive objections. So the idea that I've heard is if you go to cold climates, 
you know, like the upper Midwest or whatever, and you replace all their oil and natural gas furnaces with electric heat pumps, then you are going to get in the winter enormous demand, enormous electricity demand that's brand new, right? So you, so you have these electricity systems built for summer peaks. Peak, yep suddenly having enormous winter peaks like three times bigger than their than their historic peaks so you, you know you hear some people argue we're simply not going to be able to radically upgrade the entire electricity infrastructure in all these places fast enough so that we so we're going to need in some places some alternative to electrification which usually amounts to some zero carbon liquid fuel, whether some hydrogen variant or biomethane or whatever it is, we basically are going to need to keep combustion in some areas because we just don't have the capacity to handle that much winter electricity demand. What do you make of that? God, I wish that was a real problem. <laughs> if we were installing so many electric appliances that were actually right. causing grid disruption anywhere in the next decade, man, I could go home. That's it. Retired. Done. We succeeded. The reality is we're not going to stop maintaining the distribution and the transmission grids. We're not going to stop building generation um, in any part of this country. And the reality is we're just not going to have mass scale electrification um, at the speed that we need um, in the near term. So we're going to have some time to adjust. And I think that the people that think that electrification is going to happen in a silo have not seen how electricity systems have worked for the whole history of electricity systems. It is an integrated planning effort and that uh, demand is forecasted and then supplied. Now, you know, at some point we can talk about rolling blackouts and weather events, but on the normal, this should be something that grid managers can absolutely handle with the rate of electrification that we could see, even if we had significantly more electrification. But do you think it's fair to say, though, that if you're in one of those cold weather climates and you see electrification on the horizon, that you need to start now bulking up your electricity system because those things are not fast to accomplish? Yeah, if you are committing to electrification, you should be incorporating that into your demand models and looking at generation. And getting back to the beginning of our conversation, you should also be thinking about how you incorporate energy efficiency um, into those projects as well to be able to limit um, some of that new demand and to be able to ease building electrification into this high winter peak. To be honest with you, Dave, I think there are bigger challenges going to be electric vehicles and just the, the doubling and tripling. They're additive. I mean, they're additive, right? You get yeah. a bunch of electric vehicles in a cold weather climate alongside a bunch of electrification of heat and uh, cooling, then you're really talking about a lot of electricity. It is. With cars, you know, average car ownership is about seven years. Um, water heaters is about 15 years. Furnaces is about mm. 20 years. And so I think we're going to have a quicker turnover of the, uh, right. the vehicle fleet than we are of the uh, water heater and furnace fleet. So do you feel confident then saying, just to push you into the most radical possible statement of this, do you, do you, feel, confident, <laughs> do you feel confident saying that nowhere in the United States are we going to need, in the end, liquid fuels for heat? You think electrification is going to do it everywhere? 
I can I'd say that for buildings. Ah, right. Not necessarily for um, industrial mm. um, or transport. And I think that is a hard decision that we need to make immediately. That if you look at this incredibly precious and expensive resource, whether you're talking about trash gas or cow crap gas, or you're talking about <laughs> you know the rainbow of hydrogens, like these are all very precious and they're all yes. very expensive. Yes. And so is the highest and best use of that gas in my moderately efficient water heater in my basement? Um, <laughs> or should we be spending it in those areas where it is going to be very hard to electrify for the foreseeable future, right. such as industrial purposes, such right, as freight, right, right, aviation? Right. That's just a better use for it. So you you wouldn't even be into some blending or mixing as a kind of interim measure to reduce emissions while we wait for electrification to to go on. Um, the the challenge there is just the expense to ratepayers. Mm. Um, you're basically having to then maintain two infrastructure systems moving forward, and ratepayers paying for it. And so instead of making some of these decisions and clipping off the branches of the gas system and relieving ratepayers of that, you are just ongoing paying and upgrading it. And these upgrades to gas systems, as I said, is 60 to 80 year lives for the materials that are used. So um, these are long-term investments that are being made. And even if like the whole neighborhood's just only using gas for cooking, um, you still got to maintain that gas system to a really high level of safety. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the gas system is sort of a binary. You either have it or you don't. Yep. And if you have a single gas appliance, you need to have the whole you have the whole gas infrastructure. So it's a real kind of a sticky dilemma there. So speaking of that, uh, let's just talk for a minute about stoves then, because sure. it's such an interesting, uh, you know, in the sort of like Chinese curse sense of interesting <laughs> topic. Where are we on education? Like I'm I'm seeing it talked about more. I'm seeing a lot of concerted pushback. I know, I'm sure you're very aware of this, you know, natural gas utilities, natural gas businesses out now propagandizing all over the place, hiring advertising agencies. You have Instagram influencers cooking on gas stoves. Where do you see that sort of the battle for the hearts and minds? Where are we on that on stoves? Yeah, it's no accident that the gas company is is choosing stoves, but what's interesting is it's probably their area of greatest vulnerability. It's not a big, I mean, stoves are not a big consumer in the grand scheme of things. They're not a huge source of demand for natural gas, are they? Nope, 3 to 5% of your average home's um, natural gas demand. And so it's not it's not big, but every mixed fuel utility that provides both electricity and gas will tell us that's their nightmare. Their nightmare is that they have to run a gas system just because people aren't willing to give up their gas stove and charge everybody $180 a month just to cook with gas. Um, so it's no accident that they're focusing on this day. You know, we've been part of a number of studies that have really looked at people's attachment to different appliances. And unsurprisingly, those appliances that you interact with the most are the ones you have the greatest attachment over. And so water heaters, pretty low level of emotional response um, <laughs> and stoves really high. Um, right. And I think people have had some bad experiences with electric resistance, you know, the coil stoves of the past. Ugh, the worst. Generally, it's the two things that 
cooks, home cook or professional cooks care about the most are power and control, which is usually at the heart of all bad relationships. And <laughs> the good news is that, you know, we have an alternative that beats gas on both of those things. But we have this impression that gas is better. And you have these things coming from consumers saying things like, well, I find like I deserve a gas stove. Like I finally saved up enough money, I can finally get a gas stove. Yeah, it's definitely seen as a as a as a luxury, as an achievement. Still, it's very much so. And so, part of this movement is going to have to be um, exposing some of the inherent dangers of gas stoves, the air quality dangers, the safety dangers, whether you have a small child or older relatives in the house, and then just the dangers of piping gas around all of our communities and. Like electric vehicles, the good news is that we have, you know, the high-powered electric vehicles of the kitchen <laughs> as an alternative. Um, it'd be a bummer if, you know, we're like, no, come back to this coil stove. Um, <laughs> that's not going to work. I can't wait to see the marketing campaign around that. But gas stoves, because of the air quality impacts, are also one of the gas company's greatest vulnerabilities. And as you start to see more and more attention paid to that, and more and more groups speak out about it and start to see governments begin to address it, what is actually their their last gasp from a marketing perspective could turn into the, the final dagger. And so with induction stoves, I mean, it's fantastic that we actually have a product that once you test drive it, people's hair gets blown back. Um, it's incredible. It's three times as powerful as your best-in-class gas stove, twice as good a control um, on it, incredibly easy to clean. Oh my God. I can't really, I, when I talk to people, that's the first thing I mentioned because I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm lazy and the person who cleans the kitchen. And I, when we, we had, we're in a rental for a few months recently while we had some renovations done and it had a gas stove and God, it was a pain in the ass. I can't, it's, I was like, how do people live with this? There's so many nooks and crannies. It just gets gross so quickly. Yeah. And then the induction is just this perfectly smooth surface. God, I really, it really made me appreciate my stove. Yeah. You just wipe it. Um, we have all these pictures of my two-year-old cooking on the induction stove, <laughs> putting his hand right next to the pan and cooking eggs. And yeah, it's, it's fantastic technology. So that's the good news. The good news is that we actually have a technology that's better. It's a matter of getting people out there to test drive these things mm. and getting it in the Home Depots and getting in the appliance stores, getting little pop-ups at farmer's markets to begin this transition. It doesn't quite carry the air of fanciness as a gas stove, though. You know what I mean? Like, like a, a, we bought a just a commodity level, relatively cheap induction stove. It's not. There's no fanciness to it. I don't know what you can really do about that. If there's, <laughs> like, you can't really make a high end one either, right? Because like magnets are magnets. They're doing. They're all doing the same thing. Even the lowest end induction stove basically has exactly the power and control. You know, so. Yep. I don't know. There's a lot of consumer psychology at work here that's difficult to puzzle through. Yeah. Well, you know, we need the F-150 commercials for induction stoves. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, big men turning big dials <laughs> and big power lightning bolts shooting into the Well, you don't up. get any flame, right? Like, I you know. don't get any flame. The flame's so, so darn manly. You, <laughs> magnets don't quite do it. Are there places or companies? Like, where is, where's the industry on this, do they have a preference? What kind of stoves they make for any reason? Um, at this point, they don't. Um, at, at this point, they have been um, happy to sell whatever stove a consumer wants wants to get. 
I mean, they are standing up and taking notice when you have, you know, 54 cities in California, mm-hmm. most of the area basically say you're not going to be allowed to build with gas anymore. Right. Um, Denver, uh, Seattle for certain building types, New York City now. So that's making them take notice. And it's been interesting to watch it, Dave, because this is an appliance area that hasn't had to deal with like efficiency regulations and energy and environmental regulations a lot. Like the HVAC and the water heater folks, I mean, this bread and butter for them for, you know, 40 years. But the stove folks, I mean, they're just taken by like, whoa, we're a target? Where did this come from? Just out of nowhere. One of the most outrageous things about this, and I don't know if a lot of people appreciate this, is that in a lot of cases, it is natural gas utilities running these propaganda campaigns, and they are paying for those propaganda campaigns with, with ratepayer rate payer money. <laughs> like you're, in a lot of cases, if you have natural gas, you're paying for that prop, anti-electrification propaganda. Is there, are there legal remedies for that, or what's the right way to deal with that? There are, if your local PUC, PSC, um, BPU has a spine. Um, <laughs> and so in the, per, the area where we've seen it the farthest be expressed is out here in California, where you've actually had groups like Earth Justice bring forward motions against companies like Southern California Gas Company around using ratepayer dollars to both lobby against electrification as well as run consumer campaigns against electrification. And you've had, after months and months of delay, mealy-mouthed responses from the Public Utilities (laughs) Commission that at worst slap them with a small don't-do-it-again penalty, or Mm. at best say, well, technically under current law, there's nothing that we can really do about Mm. this. Um, And so... The good news is that you're starting to see a change in leadership at the gas companies. Um, In October, Southern California Gas Company, the largest distributor of gas in the country, released a new report called their Clean Fuels Report. And it said that electrification in widespread electrification of buildings is going to be the future of California. Um, And it's the first time we've seen a gas utility anywhere make these sorts of statements. And they think that by 2040, up to 90 percent of all of the space and water heating will be uh, electric in California. And then at the very end of the year, um, they joined PG&E in a filing um, to the Public Utilities Commission that is on a proceeding that would take away incentives to extend gas lines from gas mains to buildings. They're called line extension allowances. Yeah. And basically, we use ratepayer dollars to give money to builders to pay for some of the costs of extending gas from the gas main in the middle of the street to a house or a new commercial building. And, you know, it's a perverse incentive from a climate perspective. We're actually using ratepayer dollars to put in place infrastructure that will be harder for us to meet our climate goals. And so the PUC is in California has opened up a proceeding to recommend doing away with those. And PG&E and Southern California Gas Company came in and said, for residential buildings, we agree that we should stop incentivizing this. First time in the country. I can understand how a mixed utility, a sort of electric and gas utility, could come around to the light on this. But if you're a natural gas utility, I mean, it's pretty much existential, isn't it? If if there's no natural gas, there's no reason for you to exist. Is there a big political difference there on those kind of utilities? I see a future podcast guest in your future, Dave. Um, (laughs) So, you know, what is... The answer to every question in energy right now before it's asked. Hydrogen. 
<laughs> if you read through the clean fuels report and you read through most any clean fuels report from a gas company in America right now, is they're betting big on hydrogen. And, you know, it's a very much a don't look behind the curtain type of scenario because you don't want to talk about the fact that you're going to have to replace the entire gas system to be able to pipe hydrogen um, or how expensive that hydrogen is going to be to produce and then use. But what Southern California Gas Company has said is basically we need to start refocusing on supplying industrial and commercial clients with cleaner and cleaner gaseous fuels. Interesting. That's not crazy. Not crazy. It's um, the residential makes up thirty percent of the revenue, um, so it'll be a <laughs> yeah, big. There'll be, be a smaller. I mean, they'll be. They're inevitably going to be smaller, right? I mean, if they yep. survive at all. Yeah, but hydrogen is really is really the hope. Um, it's the hopium of our time. <laughs> it really is. All right, I have kept you in a certain length of time. I just have two final questions. We're going to try to return to our speed round pace for the final two. Lightning round i.e. just as slow as everything else. So the most common question I hear about all this is, I'm a homeowner, I'm confused and overwhelmed. What's my priority list? Like, so if I'm a homeowner and I'm making an electrification checklist, what do I do first? It's going to depend on your the age of your appliances. And so you're really looking at your four major appliances, your water heater, your furnace, your stove, and your dryer if you use gas. And you want to look at how old those systems are. And so you want to replace the oldest one first um, if you're looking at it purely from a climate perspective. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at it from a health and safety perspective of your home, you probably want to go with your stove first because mm. your stove is likely emitting levels of nitrogen oxides, formaldehyde, and carbon monoxide that would be considered illegal if they were found um, outdoors. <laughs> right. Well, what if I'm what if I'm weighing appliance replacement against, say, efficiency upgrades on my envelope or against solar panels on my roof? Are the appliances job one? Yeah, it's going to depend. It always depends, right, Dave? But um, <laughs> I don't want to, nobody wants it to depend. I know you can never say depend in a lightning round. Um, <laughs> it's going to depend a lot on your climate zone, and so if you're living up in you know Upper Minnesota, like I highly recommend you do some envelope work along with your heat right. pump. Um, but it's just going to depend on the life expectancy, how much longer you think that furnace is going to be kicking, that water heater is going to be kicking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this stuff can be confusing for people. And so the good news is that we've recognized that consumer education is a critical part of this. And we've, with uh, about 15 other sponsors, partnered on a campaign about this. It's called the Switches On campaign. Mm. And if you go to switcheson.org, it's just in California as of now. And it provides all the basic information you as a consumer need to like, what is a heat pump? Like, what would it cost to put it in? Then it has all of the rebates available to you based on your zip code, so utility, government, et cetera. And then we pre-screened hundreds of contractors that actually know what they're doing on electrification and won't talk the Daves of the world out of putting in the heat pump. Oh, yes. I, I was yeah. going to ask about that. Like I, That would have helped me, just someone to talk, the right person to talk to. Exactly. And the good news is that there's about seven other states that are standing up campaigns like this. We also are talking to folks in British Columbia and Australia with similar campaigns. So it's a recognized need, and we're trying to provide some of the, uh, the early resources that consumers need. So yeah, switchison.org if you want to see what a version one of the electrification consumer education looks like. 
Awesome. Yeah. Also related to my personal experience, I had incentives available from Seattle to switch from oil to natural gas because I didn't even have natural gas hookup to bring natural gas into my my home. I had an incentive to do that, but there were zero incentives available at the time for heat pumps, except for the, what are the ones, not the central ones, but the, the mini split. Yeah, the mini split. Yeah. For some reason, there was an incentive for mini splits, but nothing to replace a central furnace. All right, that's enough grousing about my personal experience. <sighs> Painful. <laughs> it's all the problems. I ran into all the problems. Okay, final question then. Yep. Uh, a similar question. If you're a city policymaker, mayor, or you're on town council, same thing. What's your priority list? What are you going after first? What's the big, what's the big fish? There's three things, um, and in order but they're interrelated. So number one is we need to stop digging the hole. Um, We should not be building any new buildings with gas connections. Every new one you're building is just creating a problem for your community down the road. And that's taking off, right? That's what a bunch of cities are doing. Absolutely. Now we need to really deal with existing buildings. And so the second thing is you need to set a date for when you're no longer going to allow gas appliances to be sold in your jurisdiction or in your state. Mm, you're going after the supply side then. Exactly, exactly. And there's lots of arguments. Is it building performance standards? Is it time of sale requirements? Right, and right, right. We fundamentally believe that with a whole set of complementary policies around it to build the market and to protect people, that appliance bans are what's going to be the solution that we need across the board. But the key thing is that we need to do the third thing, which is we need to build the market so that you can actually support a ban. And we've built up enough of a educated workforce and we've switched electricity rates around and we have really brought the costs down so it's comparable or cheaper than gas, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to make a mandate actually work when it goes into effect. And so those are the three for us. It's stopping new construction with gas, setting a date for the phase out of sales of appliances, use gas and then building the marketplace for electrification and they're all um, interrelated to each other awesome well this is uh fascinating i'm sure we could go on for another hour but uh, i don't want to test my my listeners already legendary patients thanks so much for coming on and thanks for uh thanks for all your uh work on this absolutely thanks for thanks for coming to our funny little corner of the clean energy world dave <laughs> all right thanks bye bye-bye Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.